inspired by the discussion about how to listen to Dharma talks, I would like to uh, offer something. And that is that uh, it's often useful to listen to talks when people are teaching about Buddhism or Buddhist practice. And um, as you're listening, uh, assume that you already know it. You already understand what's being talked about. And your task is to find where in your life this is already the, tr- uh, the case. And then from there, then maybe it's easier to enter into that teaching and maybe expand its applicability to other areas of your life. So like the Four Noble Truths, you all know it uh, so one way or the other. Uh, and you've all practiced it one way or the other through your life because I'm sure there was a time that you suffered in such a way that it was obvious to you that you were suffering because you were holding on to something. And it was obvious that you could let go and feel better. Um, Or if it wasn't obvious for you, it was obvious for the people you were with. (laughs) I once went into Safeway with my son when he was about four maybe. And uh, he wanted everything he could see, it seemed to me. I want that, can I have that, I want that. So I thought I would try to do a little teaching or something. (laughs) And I said to him, there seems to be a wanting troll inside of you. And uh, he looked at me like I was crazy. (laughs) And then he proceeded to want more. So... Uh, so, so assume you already know some of these things. And so today I'm going to uh, talk about what is called sometimes the four resolves, sometimes the four foundations. And, um, and as we go through them, maybe you can kind of uh, recall, think about uh, ways in which these four resolves or four foundations are already a resource for you in your life. And as you do that, perhaps the talk can be a little bit of a journey. Because many of the lists that the Buddha gave uh, uh, are presented a little bit sequentially. Like they build on each other. Because Buddhist, uh, the Buddhist lists are for the most part uh, lists having to do with practice. Lists having to do with some aspect of the ecology of the path, walking the path. And uh, they're often laid out um, sequentially. And so that's the case for this list I'm going to do tonight. Um, to let you know what's in store, the uh, four resolves, or the four foundations, are wisdom, truth, relinquishment, and peace. So that's the topic for today. You know, we've talked about the Four Noble Truths, we talked about attachment and clinging. And many people's lives are founded on their attachments. They are resolved on their attachments. If they're resolved really a lot, then it's, you know, addiction. Um, but the things that people are often committed to in their lives, that sometimes a whole life is based on, can be a lot of clinging and can be things which are ultimately maybe not so helpful even for their lives or 
ultimately so stable or secure or um, that it can really provide some kind of lasting foundation or for peace, for a peaceful life or a happy life. And, you know, to list some of the things that some people base their life on, some people base their life on their bank account. It was lovely. It was really quite something when I was in Burma, um, meditating away peacefully. And before I got into this long intensive retreat, I had gone and exchanged money into the Burmese kyat. And, uh, and the de- denominations don't go very high uh, for some reason. But, you know, I had a high denomination because I think a hundred kyat was a high denomination. It was worth, I don't know what it was worth, two dollars. And then they had lower kyats. And so I was just sitting there meditating, minding my own business, and woke up one morning and it was announced that the government had canceled the value of overnight of all the hundred kyat bills. Just like that. <laughs> I thought money was, you know, things aren't permanent, but money. <laughs> that in God we trust it says so that was kind of interesting so some people put their faith in money and we know lots of stories over the last 10-15 years of uh, ups and downs of investments that people have made and tremendous disasters in people's lives because of lost money because they put too much faith their life was founded on that in some way Sometimes people put uh, uh, the foundation of their life on status, maybe at work, reputation, career. And maybe it's a good career, maybe it's a good status, whatever, but it also can be quite precarious to have one's life and happiness based on such things because they can be quite ephemeral, they can disappear quickly. As many people have found out who have lost their jobs suddenly. And then, or sometimes when they retire and they kind of feel lost because what their life was based on is no longer there. Sometimes people base their life on relationships or they're, ho- they're, they're hoping to base it on relationships. Um, and so it's been put a lot of time and effort into that. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. It can be quite a, quite a nice part of life. But if that's the only foundation for a life, uh, it's also precarious. And so when the relationships change, someone dies, then what? So you can go through the list of things that people base their life on. Sometimes when people hear the teaching of non-clinging, letting go of attachments, um, sometimes people get get the message that, well, now there's nothing to base my life on. What kind of, certainly I can't be passionate about something um, because it's not kind of clinging. You know, and commitment sounds like, you know, that's it's a commitment close to clinging. But uh, there's nothing, in, uh, there's something quite significant about having a strong wish, aspiration for healthy forms of happiness and well-being and to be committed to that, to be resolved on that, to be determined on that. And so it's possible to base one's life in a very strong, committed ways on certain values, certain direction, a path of practice. And so certainly I think the Buddhist path for some people is the primary commitment of their life. Their life is ordered around that. 
uh, organized around that, and that's what you know that gives primary meaning for their life. It gives primary um, direction for the life that they're living. Um, I think that uh, because the Buddhist path doesn't exist as something external, it's really something we discover in our own hearts. It's uh, much more stable than a lot of things that exist that you know can decay and disappear. So um, uh, these lists of the four resolves are considered things that we can uh, be committed to, really dedicated, determined. This is really useful to kind of have a strong commitment to these four qualities. The word aditana is also translated as foundation. And I like this a lot because they also provide a foundation for our life. They found a, a stable, safe, secure foundation. Uh, for not only our life, but also for um, a path of practice. And so sometimes, you know, if, if, my, if practice, your practice and walking the path of practice was only up to you and your efforts, you know, I don't know how well it would go. <laughs> and now it wouldn't have gone well for me. And certainly it's important to make effort. It's important to engage in a committed way. But if it's only up to you, me, to orchestrate it all, I think it's uh, tend to tie ourselves in knots. Um, we create we, one of the things we do is we create a foundation. We create a context for <clears throat> within which the heart and the mind can unfold, uh, evolve, grow, develop uh, in the natural way. There's a natural course of practice that the heart the heart wants to grow. The heart wants to come to peace, who wants to come to freedom. And, uh, and rather than being the one who's in charge, who's going to engineer the, it all, <clears throat> one of the things we, our job is partly to create the conditions that are supportive for that unfolding, that maturing. And so these four foundations are a part of that condition. So the first one is wisdom. And... Um, there probably are definitions of wisdom in the Buddhist tradition, but um, uh, if there is, I don't like it <laughs> so much because wisdom seems kind of abstract. But the definition I like is the definition the Buddha gives of a wise person. And the, you know, there's no wisdom apart from someone who is wise. Otherwise, you know, I mean, wisdom doesn't reside in books. You know, you find the right book and you get the wisdom. Uh, wisdom is something that people live with and express and find and, you know, have in a sense. And so the definition of wisdom that I like is the one that defines a wise person. And the one that um, uh, the Buddha gave for a wise person, a wise person is someone who avoids harming themselves, harming others, and harming both self and others, and is someone who benefits themselves, benefits others, and benefits both self and others. This is, I believe this is a very uh, significant way of couching wisdom or a wise person, because it makes it very pragmatic and practical, something accessible to all of us, as opposed to wisdom is understanding the 32 parts and the 48 subparts of emptiness. You know that could be useful, uh, but um, but you know it gets you know it's very easy to get abstract when you start studying Buddhism, and and um, it can get more and more abstract, and 
you start wondering after a while, what does this have to do with my life? You know, but it's so straightforward. You know, to live a life that's based on what's that avoids harm and creates benefit. Um, and so the idea here, I believe, is that harm and benefit is something we can experience for ourselves. You don't need uh, to do a tremendous amount of book learning to know that if you have a thorn in your foot, you take it out. That's beneficial, and it's harmful to keep walking it so it bores further into, further into your soles, soles of your feet. Um, it's, uh, and so I think in the course of the retreat, probably some of you have seen in very practical ways <clears throat> what you do that's been harmful to you <clears throat> and what you can do that's beneficial. <clears throat> one, a co- one common one on retreat has that um, some people learn, I think usually by the second day or third day, is not to eat too much. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, but, so this isn't, you know, it's really good food. It's, it's a lot of, a lot of ple- it's very pleasant while I'm having it. But it's not really for my benefit to spend the rest of the afternoon bloated. And so then it's pretty common that people then will start reducing how much they eat because it's beneficial to do it. Uh, not because we're an ascetic, because it's, it's kind of, you see the practical consequences. Or you see the subtlety of um, walking down the hill to a meal, and for some reason you have this condition where maybe you feel like it's really important to be first in line. And so you're walking down the hill mindfully fast, <laughs> leaning down the hill, worried about the people who are further down the hill and trying to pace yourself so you can look mindful but still pass them. <laughs> and then you, then you kind of, it's, but something happens, so you really take a good look at yourself and you realize, this hurts. This is stressful. Do I want to, is this, is this for my benefit to be stressfully trying to be first in line? Or is it for my benefit to just let go of being first in line? Maybe I don't need to today. So, so there's a seeing there of what's harmful and what's beneficial. It's so practical and immediate. I'd like to suggest that uh, maybe the entire Buddhist path can be finding your way around this, this polarity between avoiding what's harmful and, avoiding what, and finding what's beneficial. And that perhaps uh, that's all you need to do is to use your mindfulness to see what that is. And we use the mindfulness to settle, to get focused, to be here in the present moment, so that we can see this really well. When the mind gets still and quiet, we see the subtlety of how this works. And you can probably now, after these days of the retreat, you probably can pick up movements of the mind which are harmful for you, stressful for you, and see how that's the case. And maybe even to some degree let go of some of the minor ones in ways that you would not see in a busy life outside of here. Because it's so subtle, you know, you have more important things to worry about out there. And so you're busy and frantic and running around and, you know, you don't notice that you're walking down the hill fast to get to the front of the line because you are walking down the hill fast to get to the front of the line, but you're thinking about all the other things you have to plan for and do and busy and the minds are spinning. So here you can start seeing subtlety of how this works. So to base one's life, to have as a foundation the resolve, to be sensitive and careful about where the stress is, 
where we get caught in a harmful way. And where's the benefit? Where's the freedom? Where's the release of that? I think is a very important part of finding the Dharma path in our lives. Some people might protest and say, well, isn't that selfish? Isn't that you know, focusing on yourself? Or it can't possibly be the most profound wisdom of one of the world's great world religions. There must be something you know, bigger and more wonderful than just avoiding harm and doing things which are beneficial. My friends down the street, you know, my neighbors, I mean, they're practicing oneness with the cosmos. You know, certainly that's more grand than just, you know, my little thing of avoiding harm and doing what's beneficial. But I don't think it's that way. I think that, uh, that we're so lucky to have the Buddha point to such an immediate and practical way of finding a path to a dramatic possibility of freedom, of liberation, that doesn't require the supernatural, doesn't require complicated metaphysics, doesn't require believing in anything else than what you can actually directly experience for yourself right here. And so we come back and experience this. So this is a big part of wisdom, to base one's life on this. Come back to this. Come back to yourself. Come back to your immediate experience. The path opens up from that. There's another aspect of wisdom that I wanted to mention. And that is uh, to appreciate that when you're engaged in a path of freedom, a path of mindfulness, a path of showing up, um, it's partly a journey. It's a journey uh, from living a life that has stress and suffering in it to a life that doesn't. It's also a journey, I like to think of it, to be reminded, um, to uh, not to go anywhere per se, but to uh, end up here really well. To show up here. To be here. To, uh, to arrive where you're already at. Because very few people are really where they're at. Their mind is spinning out, they're thinking in the future, hoping, planning, thinking about the past, and um, doing something else. But to be a high quality, really show up here. So this journey to here. And I like, I like emphasizing that because of how much some people strive and look elsewhere, get caught up in the goal of, of the journey. But it's a beautiful journey. In the Buddhist tradition, we call it a noble journey. And I like it that it's called a noble journey instead of a sacred journey. We could call it a sacred journey, I think it's fine. But um, uh, the sacred sometimes is seen as something outside, something, you know, there's a sacred spot or some reality that's sacred. Noble is one of these qualities like wisdom, is it refers back to people. People are noble, people are dignified, people find their dignity, their freedom. So it's a noble path we're on. And the thing about the path is that we go through different phases as we go through the path. In different times in life, different times in the retreat, different times in the period of meditation, different things are needed. And so part of the wisdom is to be sensitive to what's needed now for me, that's helpful for me. Um, And so for this, I'd like to offer you three stages to the path, three stages to maybe meditation or retreat that I found helpful it's not absolute, there doesn't have to be the only way of understanding it, but um, I like it. 
So, um, and I learned this, uh, these three steps from uh, when my son was in kindergarten. Isn't there a book? Everything you learn, everything I learned, I learned in kindergarten. The, um, when my son was in kindergarten, once a week, they would um, bring out beeswax and make something with the wax. But the way they would do it was they would bring the beeswax out and it would be hard. And if you want to, when the beeswax is hard, the only thing, only, if you, if you want to do something to it, the only thing you can do is you can break it. That's about it, you know, because otherwise it's so hard. But what the kids were taught to do was to put the, the wax in the palms of their hand, um, one hand on top of the other, and hold the beeswax there while the teacher told the story. And after a while, because of the warmth of the hand, the beeswax would get um, soft. And once it was soft, on then and only then would they shape it. And then it doesn't break so easily because it's soft, it's malleable. And then they would shape it into something, usually animals. And then, um, and then they would place it up on the shelf. So those are the three, three steps. Warm it up, shape it, and free it. And that's our steps. And sometimes what's needed is we need to warm it up. We need to warm ourselves up, our practice up, our hearts up, ourselves. We don't want to start shaping and making and doing. You want to just hold yourself uh, with care and kindness and compassion. You want to just be, be, just be, 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 just be in a kind way, in a full way. And that's especially useful when we're most in pain, suffering the most, when we are struggling the most, when we are spinning the most. Often the times when we're suffering the most or spinning the most or most agitated, that's often a time when we're most motivated to try to get out of it and do something and fix it. But the very attempt to fix it is in, you're in danger then of breaking the beeswax. And you're better off not being in a hurry. But take your time. Hold yourself care, kindly, carefully. Just, just be present. Have an attitude of kindness, of compassion, of warmth. In the, hold yourself in the equivalent of in the palms of your hand, in the palms of the Buddha's hands, perhaps. And then, once you're soft, then you can begin maybe training, shaping, an important part of Buddhist practice is cultivate. And um, cultivate oneself to develop, to train, so then we can maybe develop our concentration, strengthen our mindfulness. Um, a variety of things we can start cultivating, developing. But it's on this foundation of being, of acceptance, of warmth, of kindness, that is so important. And then, once we have made something beautiful, or part of the process of making something beautiful, is we free it. We put it up on the shelf, but we free it. And uh, the point of Buddhism is not to shape ourselves into some kind of super spiritual hero at all, no way. The idea is to get out of our own way so we can free ourselves, just release ourselves. Warm your mind, or warm your heart, shape your heart, and free your heart. So wisdom is to understand that, you know, that there's different phases 
different things are needed at different times. And to be a little bit careful with yourself and make sure that you're in tune with yourself so you know what you're needed at different times, different phases of your life, different phases of your practice, different phases of the retreat. So the, the Buddha said in terms of these, in relationship to these four resolves, um, uh, do not neglect wisdom, he said. Don't neglect wisdom, wisdom is important. And then he said, cultivate truth. No, no, he said, preserve truth, maintain truth, stay close to truth. And um, so this is the second commitment, the second resolve or foundation is truth. And there's many beautiful meanings to being committed to truth. One is that um, we're practicing an honest practice here. I think of mindfulness as almost synonymous with being honest. And uh, sometimes when external honesty, when you're talking honestly, uh, I, I sometimes call that mindfulness out loud. And, um, and when it's mindfulness internally for yourself, then I like to call it um, uh, honesty inside. We're looking to be honest. And maybe, you know, all of us are you know, pretty honest people. But uh, I think there's always levels of waking up and seeing ourselves in more honest or more direct ways. Not fooling ourselves. And not fooling ourselves about where happiness is found or what's really worthwhile to pursue. Not fooling ourselves about how we're caught up sometimes in identity issues. In my first years of practice, I struggled with myself because I didn't want to admit some of the things that I was seeing in myself. And I tried to avoid it. I tried to hide it. I tried to masquerade it. And I knew it was there somehow, but you know, I wasn't gonna, I wasn't gonna be admitted to myself. At some point, you know, you have to be honest. This is how it is. Part of the resolve or the foundation of truth is, uh, again, has to do with the, our direct experience. It's not an abstract truth that we're looking for in Buddhism, but we're looking for the truth that comes out of our lived experience, something we can see and experience for ourselves. And so part of the truth is to connect to, directly to our lived life. The only place where truth can really be found, the lived truth, the immediate truth, is in, our, in the present moment. We might understand something about the truth by understanding the past or planning out the future, but it's not gonna be a lived truth. Whatever we understand when we review the past, that, aha, now I understand. It only has value, I think, if we really then has applicability here, right now, as we live our life. So the truth which is applicable, the truth that we can connect to, and this is, again, one of, one of the reasons why mindfulness is so important, because mindfulness is what puts us close to what's true, close to what's real, right up to it, right with it. And so it's a, we have a training here to come and show up here and what's true. And then the Four Noble Truths that we've talked about already in this retreat, the Four Noble Tasks. The Four Noble Truths uh, are pragmatic truths. They're not abstract truths at all. They have to do, the truth, they have to do with truths about our experience that relate directly to the definition of wisdom. Um, the First Noble Truth is suffering, which is what's harmful. We want to avoid that. 
The second noble truth is the action we're doing that's causing that harm. We want to avoid that. The third and fourth noble truth have to do with uh, doing the beneficial. First two noble truths, but avoiding the harm. The second noble truth, the third and fourth noble truth about doing what's beneficial. And so to, it's just a very, I think it's a very simple formula or understanding, a way, way of work, a framework for looking at our experience. There's so many different frameworks that we can use to look at our reference points to looking at our experience. And the Four Noble Truths are offered as a very powerful framework, reference point. When you're in any situation at all, consider where's the stress Where's the suffering here in this situation? Where's the cause of it? What's the condition that causes it? Where's the possibility of release from it? What are the steps I need to take to help me with that process? That's a more useful reference point than um, a reference point of self-identity. Like, I hope they like me. I hope that, you know, that um, you know, that, you know, I hope I can get rich here. I hope I can get, you know, you, you can, you can fill in a lot, lot of, lot of, lot of reference points that we use, a lot of desires and wishes and stuff. But the Buddha offered this reference point. And to think of it as a reference point takes maybe some of the heaviness off of it, when, because unfortunately it's called a truth, right? And for some people, hearing a truth sounds kind of heavy. It's like a creed. But you know, it's just a simple thing. Take the thorn out when you have a thorn in, in your heart. So the third of these uh, resolves, foundations, is... Um, a word which is sometimes translated into English as relinquishment and sometimes as generosity. Uh, it, it has both functions. And partly you can see it because when you're being generous, usually you give something up. You relinquish something to someone. Hand something over. And, um, and this is one of the uh, beautiful qualities of, of the heart and the mind. Once you're soft with, you know, you've been sitting for a while in the palms of the Buddha, then um, you get to shape something and uh, shape the heart and the mind. And one of the ways to shape it, uh, uh, the Buddha called it adorn your mind, is by practicing generosity. You make your, your mind beautiful, your heart beautiful. And I think, I was, I think of generosity as kind of like, I hope it's the, okay to say this, but the mother's milk of humanity. Because, you know, our human life wouldn't be possible without at all the many forms of generosity that we've, we've experienced. Some of us didn't realize how generous our parents were until we were parents. You know, they did that for me? <laughs> again and again? And, um, but you know, so much generosity. And I was touched to uh, notice the, very moved actually, to the board down in the dining room that says Emil Dana, and then all the names of people who are on it that people are thinking this way and offering their generosity to support people here on the retreat through their food, feeding people. Have you 
has, has, has the generosity of other people, have you been the recipient of the generosity of other people in, in ways that have been meaningful for you over your life? Have there been significant moments, acts of generosity, someone supported you, helped you, did something for you? One of the meaningful ones for me that made it in the, in the world of Buddhist practice, once I entered that world, that um, was really a small moment. There's a few, usually it's the small moments that made the biggest difference for me. But one of them was, um, I was doing my first Vipassana retreat in Thailand, and I was given a kuti, a little hut, at the edge of the monastery. It was kind of like a dog patch monastery, and it was, it was the edge of the swamps. And there was this long plank, uh, planks of wood across the top of the swamps uh, to the steps of my kuti. And, uh, and then there was, because it was often flooded, there was this big, you know, it was on, the hut was standing on stakes, on the poles. And then um, it was kind of wet around there. The only place it wasn't wet was uh, about, I don't know, four feet away from my hut. There was a six-foot cement grave. And so I, I could do walking meditation there <laughs> on top of that cement. So I, it was early one morning and I was meditating. And because I was a lay person, I didn't go out with the monks in the early morning when they went for their alms rounds. And so I was just sitting there uh, meditating. And um, it was at some point I decided to get up, maybe go outside, go outside. And there was a little porch on top of the little steps coming up from the planks of wood. And there was, um, so, so, so I opened the door. And what you see, if you open the door, you see the porch, you see the steps, and you saw these long series of planks going back to dry land. And so I opened the door, and the top of the steps, uh, there was an apple and some cookies. And on the far end of the planks, walking away, was a monk. And what, and the, what moved me with that moment of generosity from him was he had no idea I was just about to open the door. In other words, he had no concern that I, know, I would know that he was the one who gave. And that made such a big difference. Wow, just to give that freely and not get credit? So that's that kind of something released in me, let go inside of me in, see, in that moment of seeing that. It made a big difference for me. And then to be in Asia, uh, practicing there and to be the recipient of so much generosity, you know, it just, it just kind of blew me away. And at some point it became clear that I was practicing not just for myself, but I was practicing in a very healthy way, I think, uh, to be worthy of the generosity of people, all the people who supported me. I was inspired, really motivated me. And then we come here, and this place, Spirit Rock, is, you know, is a result of so many people's generosity. Every time I come and teach a retreat in this hall here, I'm moved to think that this building here uh, is the result of many, many people's donations, generosity. I mean, it's such an awesome place to be sitting here. I mean, where in the world do you have a hall like this? It's just something else. And, and uh, it's here because of generosity. So that, that kind of relationship generosity, the feel, being the recipient and feeling it, is kind of like, you know, letting, you know, putting your beeswax in the palms of the Buddha and letting yourself get soft. The, um, some of you know uh, Mr. Rogers? Mm-hmm. Mr. Rogers is uh, one of the great American sa- saints. 
and uh, he's one of my great heroes. I didn't know about him until my, I had a son, and he started watching Mr. Rogers. And, um, and Mr. Rogers is, uh, was, a, I think, a Presbyterian minister who started a children's show and, uh, for little kids. And he um, uh, sang songs to kids, and he, he treated kids with tremendous friendship and respect. And, and he had all these beautiful values, and he did everything slowly. And, it's great. <laughs> and um, so Mr. Rogers at some point won an Oscar or whatever they do for TV. Is that the right thing? Something like that? I don't, I don't, I once did a, I'm getting distracted. Do you don't mind? I, I, once was le- I, I once was leading a, um, a program for teens, ninth graders, room full of 40 ninth graders. And I told them that I, I did, I, I, that, uh, I haven't known what's on television since 1972. <laughs> and uh, I could see my credibility go. <laughs> I had to kind of work hard to get my credibility back. So I don't know, what's it called when you your TV? Yeah. Emmy. He got an Emmy. So he was getting his Emmy, right? So, so, so he got down stage and uh, he took and do his little speech. And he said, okay, everyone, uh, everyone here has come here where they're at today in their life because there was someone in their life that supported them, cared for them, that did something generous. Let's take a few moments or a minute here to sit here quietly and remember them. And you can imagine the producers, you know, TV, like... (laughs) 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 A minute of silence? (laughs) And so they panned the audience, all these TV stars, I guess, and, and a lot of them were crying, remembering. Who was it who brought them here? So in the palms of people, of humanity, so we can warm up, to be resolved on generosity, to remember that. But then to act generously, um, the, um, to practice generosity, it's one of the great resolves, one of the great commitments, one of the great things to do uh, is to be generous. And there's many ways of being generous. You can be generous with your smile, generous with your time. You can be generous with a door when you, you know, some, you know, we could, we could, we could be really serious about our practice. You know, my practice and my mindfulness and my concentration is so important. I really huffed and puffed here and I finally got a little bit of going and I better hold on to it really well. And you, and you know, you get to the door and you know, just ignore everybody else. They don't realize, you know, that you're on the brink of something. <laughs> you know, and not to wait for me as I go out through the door. That's one way to practice the spirit rock. Another way is to be generous and not hold on to anything, not hold on to your practice, your concentration. Open the door. Here, you go. When I was, um, there was a brand times when I've been on retreat where it's not exactly generosity, but it's a similar kind of idea, where I made my commitment to follow the schedule to the T. And um, if the bell rang, I got up from my sitting, I'd get up and go walking. If the bell rang to come back in the hall, I'd come back in the hall. And it was really a delight to do it because there was more satisfaction in the freedom of giving up than there was in holding on to my meditation. So, in, you know, I, the bell rang, oh, oh no, I, I'm not going to give up 
stop now. I mean, there's so much, you know, if I was getting concentrated, I'd, there's so much pleasure here. I'm really enjoying it. It's going really well. But I, w- I was committed to g- just getting up. So I'd get up and I'd feel as I gave up, got up, this release, this freedom. Just, you know, I'm not going to hold on to anything, even the good. And of course, sometimes it was welcomed. <laughs> the, um, so this idea that, you know, it's a relinquishment as part of generosity, this kind of releasing. And relinquishment in Buddhism, the kind of whole letting go that Buddhism emphasizes, is not meant to, make, to, to diminish you, to make you less than who you are. It's really to enhance you, if you like, make you bigger, make you freer, make you more open. It's supposed to be for your betterment to let go. Um, I like to say that if, if you've let go and you don't have some kind of lightning or joy, you probably haven't let go. And I learned that little saying for myself because um, uh, when, I was, when we had young little kids at home, there were times I was pretty frustrated. And I'm not just frustrated, but resentful. <laughs> and so, you know, I would try to let go. You know, I said, I need to let go. And so I, was, I thought I was pretty good at letting go. And um, so I let go. Great. That was nice. And, and, um, and what I learned, that if I let go and only went to neutral, I hadn't let go. If I only got to neutral, it would come back and bite me. Mm-hmm. So I, I had to learn to let go until I felt lighter or a little bit of joy or something. And that's, that's when I knew I'd let go. So this relinquishment, willingness to open up, willingness to release the way we're clenched and held. And if we can't release how we're held, how we're clenched, how we're clinging, then um, maybe put yourself back in the palms of the Buddha. Maybe it's not the time for releasing. Maybe the beeswax is not soft yet. Some people try so hard to release, to let go, when the beeswax is still hard. Maybe just wait. Take your time. Maybe you need to just be present for a while. Hold it gently. So it's one of the resolves, the resolve to relinquish. Resolve to be generous, to let go, to not hold on. We're not even supposed to hold on to what's good. And then you say, what's, but but the good? When you release, when you open your hand and release what's there, your hand is open ready to receive the gifts that life has for you. If you hold your hand tight and clenched, the hand is not ready to receive anything. You gain more by the release than you do by the holding. So that's the third. And here the Buddha talked about, for this this resolve, he talked to cultivate relinquishment. And I like it, he says cultivate because cultivate means you can't do it well, but you learn to do it, you develop the capacity. And then the fourth of these foundations or resolves is peace. And um, peace, how do we define peace? 
uh, I define, I like to define it as the absence of conflict. To no longer be struggling with how things are, to no longer be fighting, to no longer be clenched or tight, to no longer be resisting or pushing with the heart. The heart can be at peace. The heart can be settled on itself. The heart can be at home in itself. And it's one, I, I think it's been one of the most beautiful experiences of a human life is a purified heart, a heart which is settled on itself, which is at peace with itself, that can rest in itself, content in itself. It's no longer agitated, no longer pushing, no longer defended, no longer closed. A heart that's at peace. But to be resolved on peace, to be committed to the experience of uh, being at ease or being settled or being, I like the word peace. One of the great practices, did someone mention it? Did maybe Mary mention it earlier? Um, that uh, uh, Ajahn Amaro taught us some years ago was uh, his simplest definition of, or instructions for meditation was, or is, um, uh, set yourself set yourself at ease, whatever ease that's available for you, whatever calm or relaxation that you can. Set yourself at ease, and then notice what takes you away from that. That's it. Isn't that great instruction? Notice what takes you away. You, uh, you know, I think it's one of those instructions that can teach you everything you need to know. It's very powerful, very meaningful to use your meditation practice, like in daily meditation, either here or at home, to use it to get a little bit you know, calmer than you normally would be, a little more subtle, more peaceful than you usually would be. And then as you leave your meditation session and start your day, pay very careful attention to the first hint, the first indication that you're losing that calm. And then stop, close your eyes or sit down and then review what just happened and be really honest about it. What just happened there? And then ask the question, um, is it wor- was it worth sacrificing your peace for what you just sacrificed it for? So for example, I can be quite, you know, a little bit more calm and settled after my meditation in the morning. And then I had to learn that if I try to read the newspaper at breakfast and get these kids to school on time, I was going to get stressed out. We'd be behind, had to rush. And was it worth losing my peace, my calm, for the sake of reading that paper? In two days, I wouldn't remember what I read anyway. And so it took me a while. <laughs> I'm a slow learner sometimes. But after a while, I learned, no, it's not worth it. So I, by review, by looking at that, okay, I'll give up the paper for now. And then I'll go through you know, all the preparations for leaving, getting kids to school in a calmer way. But there's many examples. You know, so to you, use your peace as a teacher. Use your calm as a teacher to help highlight how you lose it. Not to beat yourself up, but to use it as a way to clarify, to understand better, and to question what you're doing. It's really important to question 
is it really worth what I'm doing? What I believe needs to happen here? What I'm wanting to happen? What my desires are? What my fears are? That's causing me to lose my calm. Is it really worth it? Do I really want to live based on this? Is it better to be a little bit stressed and get what I want? Or is it better to be calm and settled and try to get what I want? What needs to happen? So the Buddhist path is said to end in peace, a peaceful heart. A peaceful heart is a heart that is open, so open that there's no walls, so open that it's transparent and just free. A heart that's so open that a heart that you know that even even the way we hold on to self, self-image, self-concept, is released. So the Buddha said that if you base your life on these four foundations, wisdom, truth, relinquishment, and peace, then the tides of conceiving will not sweep you away. And uh, to say it a little more colloquially, the tides of your stories, the floods, the waves of your story making won't carry you away. Because conceiving and story making is a way of losing touch with what's true and immediate and direct. But if you base your life on what's true and immediate and direct, wisdom, truth, relinquishment and peace, peace is something you experience then the tides of conceiving, all the stories we make, we get swept up in stories and believing our stories won't sweep you away. And then he said, a person, who is, uh, for, a person for whom the tides of conceiving, the tides of your stories don't sweep you away is a sage at peace. And then he went on to say, Uh, named some of the most tenacious forms of conceiving that people cling to and hold on to. And this is a fascinating list. I'll just name a few of them. Said, I am is a conceiving. I am is a story. Make up all kinds of, I am this, I am that. I shall be is a conceiving, is a story. I shall be this, I shall be that, I want to be that. I shall not be is a conceiving. The person who's free of conceiving <coughs> stories about who they are and who they're going to be, who they're not going to be, is a sage at peace. Let go of all the stories of who you think you are. The stories which are grand stories of who you are and the stories which are far from grand. You don't need any of them. You don't need to tell, your, you don't need to tell a story about yourself at all. It, it, you can just be. 
be simple, be direct. And if you're not going to base your life on stories about me, myself, and mine, then you can base your life on wisdom, truth, relinquishment, and peace. And if you do that, then perhaps you will become the palms of the Buddha for everyone else. So they can soften. So let's sit a little bit and soften up. (laughs) 